Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. Welcome to part two of our special episode on artificial intelligence, where we pick up on my conversation with two of Australia's leading independent technologists on artificial intelligence. Bill Simpson-Young and Tiberio Cayetano are the CEO and chief scientist, respectively, of Gradient Institute. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend that you do so before continuing with this episode. We refer to lots of things in this conversation that build on what we discussed in part one. Now, for those of you who have listened to part one, you'll remember that we finished up when we were talking about liability and the development of Bad Llama by researchers in the US who took Meta's large language model, Llama, that was released or leaked, and then took that model, retrofitted the code so that it was doing bad things, hence Bad Llama. Now, we're going to pick up the conversation with me, chatting to Bill and Tiberio about the link between liability and open source models. The conversation around open source models, you know, I come from a background that is largely um, a security background and the idea of open source providing greater security is something that, you know, has almost become a mantra and it's being totally flipped on its head in the conversation around artificial intelligence largely because of this idea that once you release a model and make that model open source and available, it then means other people have access to it and can, you know, do what they like on the back end, not mere mortals like me, but but others. Um, and therefore you can't patch when you discover that it has this bad emergent capability because the original model is out there. So do you think um, limitations on open source models, and and for our listeners, open source basically means that the code is available um, out there for everybody to be able to see. Do you think that open source models isn't responsible in the context of artificial intelligence, which kind of goes against the grain of what we've, what we've been taught in the security space? So I've spent all my life being, a, <laughs> being pro-open source, right? And, mm. and, and I still am pro-open source in general. But there are times, you know, as with, you know, there's some information that it's that it's good for society not to be revealed. You know, we don't reveal all information, right, uh, mm. to all people. Um, it's not anti-open source as a principle to say that model parameters, you know, in some cases for some powerful model parameters, perhaps it's better for society that those are not exposed to everybody, mm. not made available to everybody, such that anybody just pick it up and use it. And I, you know, I think most people would understand that because there's certain information we don't, the people are quite comfortable with not being available to everybody, right? And so it's just, it's just like that. Yeah, I just would, would fully agree with that and, and also add that at the end of the day, it's all about trade-offs, right? I mean, just like transparency is super important, isn't it? Mm. But so is privacy, okay? So look, the reality is that violating an important value has a cost. And sometimes two values they clash with each other and there'll be two costs mm. and you have to compare those two costs and actually make a judgment about it. So in this case, we it's a really complicated question because we really rely on open source to ensure that power doesn't get too concentrated in the hands of a few organizations. That's crucial. I like to call there are two attractors. There's the collapse attractor, which is the one I just described. 
where too much power is distributed across too many people, and eventually someone does something really bad, either deliberately or unintentionally, just because they have too much power in their hands. Mm. And the other attractor, which is like the dystopia attractor, which is you don't distribute power. Instead, you concentrate power only in those organizations that, in theory, do have the checks and balances to use that power so as not to blow up the planet. Mm. But then you have a tyranny. Mm. So we want to stay far away from those two attractors, and we want to walk the middle path with care. Mm. And just for our listeners who think we're only going to talk about um, uh, crazy existential risk, we will come to things like um, bias and discrimination uh, in a um, more practical sense in the next set of questions. But I do want to keep following this line of line of conversation because how do we do that? How do we walk that line between the two attractors that you're talking about there? And one of the things that Gradient has been calling for is for Australia to take a leadership role uh, internationally on these things. And I actually think if we are going to avoid the types of futures that you're describing very um, evocatively there, Tiberio, it has to be through international cooperation. So if we are looking to do this uh, with, uh, with partners internationally, what do you think the next steps are? What are the logical things that need to happen, say, in the next six months? Because there has to be an urgency to this discussion. Yeah, uh, that's tough. I think, I mean, one good thing to see is that the UK AI summit that's happening, so AI safety summit, mm-hmm. and it's important, it's, it's not an AI summit, it's an AI safety summit, mm. um, is, is happening in, you know, 1st, 2nd of November. And that's a really important um, forum for Australia to get involved. Um, obviously, we're close to the UK. What's really nice about that summit is they've set out, you know, five objectives and they're all based around safety. And just just for those who don't know, AI safety is something quite specific. It's not the same as responsible AI. You know, mm. it is let's make sure that these and these frontier models and and you know nicely the objectives do specify they're talking about frontier models. Mm. Um, and that that um, you know the objectives are towards this global collaboration on ensuring that the mechanisms are in place for ensuring AI is used safely, that frontier models are used safely. When we talk about international cooperation, we then always uh, have to think about China in the context of this discussion. And a lot of people say to me, well, we're never going to get China to come to the table on these types of discussions. And I actually push back on that very strongly and say, actually, I think China wants to come to the table on this uh, because they have a motivation to constrain I, I also have spent large parts of my career um, pushing back on people saying to me, we need to have an international convention in this space or, you know, insert your tech issue that is the hot issue of the day. And I've spent the last 10 years saying no, no, no. And I actually think we're now in a position where we do have a very small window of opportunity uh, to make, to do something uh, really important And it is, if you look back over the course of history, the times when we have had these types of agreements have not been times when there has been great cooperation and love between nations. It's been when there has been a mutual desire to constrain. 
I think we're in that period right now. The the Chinese are concerned about the development uh, in the US and the speed and the pace. Um, the US are importing, uh, imposing all sorts of export controls in China. There is that mutual desire. Tiberio, I can see you nodding. What what do you think needs to happen to bring the US and China together on this issue? Yeah, basically, I fully agree, Joanna, with what you just said there. I think that um, the there are things that actually China and the United States agree on. For example, they agree that they don't want another COVID-19, right? <laughs> For whatever reason. They may have different reasons, but they, they agree that that's bad. Mm. They agree that they don't want their infrastructure to be uh, basically brought down for for a day or two or a week, mm. and uh, essentially the economy to be dramatically jeopardized as a result of that, and many people suffering as a result. So they agree on that. If you take the top scientists and you get them in the table, talk AI researchers who understand the technicalities of large language models, mm. they will also agree that the potential dangers of these models mm. uh, could eventually enable such uh, capacities to create this harm. So there's a lot of ground mm. <laughs> for agreement on facts. Mm. Of course, there will be lots of room for disagreements in terms of the political philosophy of different countries and so on. But here we're not talking about political philosophy. We are talking about, you know, everyone wants to be able to wake up in the morning and go to work and know that the buzz is going to work, it's going to be there. And um, when you go to the restaurant, you want to know that the restaurant will have the food to give you. And, um, you know, when you want to have a medication to give to your sick child, you want to know that actually you go to the pharmacy and the medication is there. Like, there is something called civilization. And that is fragile. Infrastructure that we have today is reliant on computers. AI is the tool that tells computers what to do. There is global incentive to make sure that the path of AI into the future is a wise path that doesn't create significant harm for any nation state, for any peoples in the world. Mm. There's so much room for agreement. Yes, not every person on the planet has, uh, wants the world to be good, but every nation state in the planet wants to survive, right? China wants to, doesn't want to kill everyone, right? Not even North Korea wants to do that, mm. right? So there is a lot of room for, for agreement. And I believe that it's a matter of diplomacy, it's a matter of leadership, and on that, you were the expert here, and uh, I'm in full agreement. There's plenty of room for harmonization, agreement. And you, in fact, if you just read the proposed AI regulation in China, the Chinese regulation, you just see, oh, come on. I mean, this is much stronger than anything that has come from the West so far mm -hmm. in terms of ensuring there are guardrails around AI. So the critique around, you know, we won't bring China on board with this and if we stop, won't be competitive with China and so on. I think that critique, um, you know, I haven't seen strong arguments supporting that critique. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think there's a strong link here also to liability because you couldn't, Australia as a country couldn't implement a liability regime, in, you know, as, as a one nation. We would need to do that in partnership and cooperation. But this is where actually um, using the existing legal frameworks um, from an international negotiation point of view makes a lot of sense. And, in the, you know, if you're applying existing liability within your economies, you're not having to have conversations about negotiating that liability at an international level. You're just saying we're not renegotiating that. You apply the liability within your jurisdiction, but we agree that we are going to apply that liability. Now, regular listeners of Tech Mirror will know that prior to founding the Tech Policy Design Centre at ANU, I was Australia's chief cyber negotiator at the United Nations. And the hypothetical scenario that I'm about to describe to Bill is one that I've been in and lived to tell the tale. If you want to hear that story, please check out Tech Mirror's back catalogue, episode 10, Bombs or Bites, International Law Applies. So, Bill, continuing on with this theme of international cooperation, I want to imagine for a moment that you're sitting at the UK AI Safety Summit in November. I think it's running from the 1st to the 2nd of November. So, as always, it comes down to the wire. So, it's um, it's coming up to 10pm at night on the 2nd of November. Uh, you're holding the pen on negotiating the final agreement and communique that comes out of that. Um, all of the world's AI experts plus a bunch of politicians and public servants are crowded around you. You're sitting at the table. What are the three things that you want to have in that final communique that you think we need to have reflected? Okay. No pressure. No pressure at all. <laughs> okay, so so the first thing I think that's critical for everybody to agree on is the urgency of addressing the issue, the urgency of coming up with some approach. There is an opportunity to do something now. There won't be an opportunity to do something later. And the sooner it's done, the easier it's going to be. Like the longer it's left, the harder it's going to be. If a, if a long process has started, it will probably never complete. So the urgency of getting something done. Okay, that's the first one. Second would be the establishment of a global committee to continue on an ongoing basis to work on the out, on the outcomes of the summit and to be putting to, to be designing the way forward, which is probably designing some body, some global body that can work on um, you know, on an ongoing basis on 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 controlling the risks mm. um, and that. The, and that the instructions for that committee should include that they look into issues such as you know, certification of frontier models, uh, licensing of the, the need for the people who are training these models to have an appropriate license to do so, and the liabilities for the use of those models, which could be you know, liability, which includes the use by other people of the models that the people training them create. And if those are all included in that, um, the, the brief, the mandate for that committee, mm. that they can look at that body that manages that on an ongoing basis. And the third one would be that Australia is heavily involved in this, hopefully mm. leading this work. Mm. Um, it's at, at the moment, most of the discussion is happening in a, you know, in a Northern Hemisphere uh, context. Um, I've even seen some of the documents which talk about, you know, use 
season names in oh, the, in the documents. That's my pet hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the, the the G7 Hiroshima document in yeah. the first paragraph it says this this document is from summer 2023. I mean, yeah. yeah so there needs to be a southern hemisphere perspective in here. <laughs> hopefully, Australia can be heavily involved and hopefully lead the work. Yeah. Look, I, I think that's um, that's a really um, exciting, if not pressurised, picture. And I, I think just to contextualise also when I say that I've spent 10 years saying no, no, no um, to the idea of a convention, it's not because I'm disagreeing in principle that an agreement isn't a good idea. I just haven't thought that the conditions were right to be able to ever secure that agreement. And so I really do just want to emphasise this point that right now my observation is that the conditions are right. You have that mutual desire among great powers to constrain we have something to constrain. Um, so the frontier models, we're not constraining all types of artificial intelligence. We're limiting it to this particular area. And also the high-end chips gives you the leverage to be able to do that. And also this concept of liability and the importance of liability, but the flexibility because countries already have a lot of liability regimes in place. So you're not renegotiating liability at a domestic level. You're just agreeing at the international level that we need to apply it at the domestic. So I think, you know, without applying too much pressure on on the AI safety summit that's coming up in, in November, this is a, most international agreements rely on serendipity. They rely on things coming together. And I do think we are in a, a pretty unique moment of having many of those conditions here. We're going to turn and have a look at uh, perhaps moving away from the frontier models and looking more at these narrow or foundation models much of the regulatory frameworks that, that we have and that exist already in the world here, I'm thinking about the EU approaches, but also the approach proposed in the Australian paper, um, look at a risk-based approach to regulating these narrow and foundational models. In your response to the government request for submissions, Gradient is asking or, or expressed some concern about the limitations of that risk-based approach. I share your concerns on that front, but Tiberia, can you can you set out for us what what the concerns are with the limitations of a purely risk-based approach? In this submission, we indeed um, offer some criticism towards the way a risk-based approach was framed okay. in the paper. We are by all means in favor of a risk-based approach as interpreted according to what I'm about to say. Okay, good. <laughs> Always good with a careful caveat. <laughs> um, in the submission, um, the, what was called a risk-based approach was more like a risk tiering approach. Let's define certain tiers of high mm -hmm. risk, medium, and so on. And then let's actually apply regulation to those different tiers, tiers right? Risk is something that has been studied for a very long time, <laughs> for many, gener for generations in many different industries, in academia and so on and so forth, like, for example, insurance professionals know everything about risk. So if we are to develop a risk-based approach, it makes complete sense. You don't want over super onerous um, requirements on low-risk activities, and you don't want under um, sort of a lack of requirements on extremely risky activities. So that 
is a basic common sense statement. We want to do it properly. And by doing it properly, we mean we need appropriate risk assessment regimes. We need appropriate risk management processes in place. As I mentioned before, we have different classes of regulatory interventions, and we should judiciously apply them depending on which category of risk we were talking about. As we said before, if it's frontier AI models, it makes a lot of sense to have some technology-specific regulation dedicated for that, but perhaps not for narrow AI models, where general regulation, sector-specific regulation may well do the job. Um, but as I said, it's important to assess the risk appropriately, and that requires actual technical expertise. It's not about you getting people. It's, it's not a democracy. This, this is if you if you have a toothache, you go to the dentist. You don't <laughs> go to the lawyer, right? So if you want <laughs> to get it right, you need to ask uh, the experts who understand what constitutes the nature of those risks. And in part, we've been talking about frontier models. I mean. A lot of those concerns, they haven't materialized yet, fortunately. We don't, haven't seen devastating cyber attacks or new pandemics since COVID, right? Uh, the reason why we're concerned about that is because we have technical experts who actually are building these models and seeing that these things will happen as we impose strong constraints and mm -hmm. safety uh, requirements. So, yeah, so that's the general pitch here. One of the things that I have really struggled with when I've been talking about or examining the risk-based approach to artificial intelligence is, well, if we're talking about the emergent capabilities of artificial intelligence against a risk-based approach, which when you're assessing risk requires you to have an element of predicting what is going to happen, but you have models that have emergent capabilities, how is a risk-based model ever going to actually be able to provide the protections or prevent the harms that we don't know exist? Excellent question. And that uh, I love that question. <laughs> well asked, uh, Professor uh, Weaver. You know, it, it, is, it is truly excellent question because it gives me the opportunity to highlight the uh, point I was trying to say before. Mm. Um, high risk shouldn't be understood as high risk. Mm. I know this sounds absurd. Well, yeah, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I wish you could see his face, listeners. Yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> now, if you don't know what the worst case scenario could possibly look like, mm. it's high risk by definition. Mm. That's the way we should think about risk. Like... For example, if I have a knife, right? Why there's no st strict liability for creation of knives? You know, in other words, why the people, the companies who create knives are not on the hook in case someone takes that knife and kills someone, mm. right? Why is that? Well, it's because a single knife cannot kill a million people. That's the answer. Because if it could, you could be damn sure that there would be strict liability for that and no one would create knives mm -hmm. to begin with. Or they would create knives that magically <laughs> would have the right provisions in it to prevent you from killing <laughs> lots of people, right? So that's the way to think about it. So back to the, your brilliant question. Um, we, if we are very uncertain 
about what the worst case scenario could potentially be. Mm. You know, common sense says that we should use what's called the precautionary principle. We should basically assume that the worst case can materialize. Mm. There's only two moments for you to intervene, too early or too late. Mm. And this is why I really stressed at the start for the listeners, it's the distinction between these frontier models, which are largely the models that have the emergent capabilities and the narrow models and the foundation models. The blurring comes with the foundation models that have some of these emergent capabilities. And then how do you apply a risk and regulatory framework around that? So, you know, I, I hope for listeners, this is starting to give you some more lexicon to be able to engage in these conversations um, as you're, you know, around the water cooler uh, talking about these issues. Bill, I, I want to talk a little bit now about some of the practical work that Gradient is doing, particularly because whilst most of the conversation at the moment is around regulatory and legal frameworks around artificial intelligence, in, in no small part because of the focus that has been put on this by release of ChatGPT, but also the pause letter and the, the momentum that has come behind it. But the reality is that conversation about regulation of those frontier models is actually a different conversation to the conversation of these other types of models. And there is and has been a lot of really excellent work that's gone on in that space, largely around ethical principles. So, you know, we're talking about regulation a lot now. It used to be that we would talk about ethical ethical principles and responsible artificial intelligence. And in June, Gradient released a new report uh, with the Australian National Artificial Intelligence Centre um, that is designed to help bridge the gap between the AI ethics principles and the business practices of responsible artificial intelligence. So can you perhaps talk a little bit about the challenges of translating those high-level principles and frameworks like the ethics principles into tools that businesses can actually use? Yeah, yes, John. And it's um, it's good to talk about this. I mean, we, from the talks so far, we've, as you said, we've mostly been talking about, you know, the dangers uh, of course, we're all AI professionals. You know, I've been working in AI for large parts of my life, and uh, and I want AI to be used. It's AI is an important um, technology, important tool. Um, foundation models are important and, and and incredibly useful and and, and world changing. We need to be um, helping people use AI well and properly as it should be used. Um, so the you know the federal government in 2019 released the AI ethics principles and they're really good, still very solid today, um, talking about the importance of transparency, accountability, fairness and so on in, in models. And a lot of organisations are adopting those, it's quite well known, known now in industry. Um, however, they're good, so they're really important for an organisation, you know, government, government organisation or business, to be adopting those principles, and, but but that establishes the intent, you know, the intent that the organisation has, and like, like the values the organisation has. Uh, a lot of we work with a lot of companies, like a lot of big banks, insurance companies, telcos, and so on. And 
a lot of the teams will come to us and say, look, you know, we've got this in 10, how do we actually do this? And, and it's, it's, it is hard, right? It, it's hard to ensure that all your AI systems are operating fairly and, and, and transparently and so on. So, so yeah, the, the report we've released with the National AI Centre, um, I highly recommend it. It's called Implementing Australia's AI Ethics Principles. We'll put a link in the pod notes. Great. And, and it goes through each of the principles and for each principle, it identifies some practices, some, you know, hands-on practices. I mean, it's actually a very pragmatic document. It's it's meant to be there for people to use, um, but we didn't want to repeat. You know, there's a lot of AI principles out there, a lot of frameworks and so on, a lot of assurance frameworks. What we're trying to do is actually, the for people who are actually designing, building, overseeing, procuring these systems, you know, what, how do you actually do this? So, so yeah, as I said, for each principle, we've got a bunch of practices, like three or four practices that we, we think they're not the only practices, but we think they're sort of the some key practices for each practice, we've got a set of resources on, you know, pointers to online resources. We explain those resources where we think there are gaps um, for a particular practice. We explain what you should do in those cases, and uh, so there's a lot of detail in that. And so, it is hard, but I think um, it's a very useful document that people can use as a bit of a guidebook um, to get them started. Mm, and I think it's so important. So. Ed Santo, uh, who's uh, one of the founding directors at um, the Human Technology Institute at uh, University UTS uh, in Sydney, um, he he talks about some work that um, HTI has been doing, where they've surveyed, you know, I think over two thousand different organisations about, do you have these ethical principles? Yes, we do. What are you doing to implement them? What what behaviours have you changed since you've since you've signed up to the ethical principles? Um, nothing because we don't know how to implement them. And so I can't stress enough the importance of that document and the work that Gradient has done to really take the principles from this sort of um, high-level high um, uh, values-based um, approach to the actual implementation. So for any, anyone who's working in this field, but also for those of us who work in policy, to be able to see that translation and start to build your vocabulary, I, I found it really useful when I was looking at the document to refine the way that I'm referring and talking to things. So thank you for, for the work that you've done in that space. And maybe now um, leading into, we're referring a little bit there to um, responsible artificial intelligence. And, you know, for two of you who were talking about responsible artificial intelligence way before it was cool, can you can you tell us about areas where you think that Australia has particular promise? So, you know, Australia does do a lot of excellent work in artificial intelligence. So I'm not looking for you to list like all of Australia's wonderful areas, but what makes, what are you most excited about in terms of the future contribution Australia can make in this space. I'll start by just talking about my views about organisations out there. Okay. <laughs> and there is a lot of, you know, we work with a lot of organisations, as I said, and there was a real, it used to be the case that we had to tell people that it was important to use AI responsibly. Now it's a bit of a given, right? That They, they know that. And there's a lot of... Um, a lot of good intent out there. And I think Australia is in a good position there. I think Australian companies have a real, you know, compared to some other countries, um, I won't name any, um, but there is a real desire to for an organisation to behave responsibly mm. with their AI. Isn't that heartening? It is heartening. Mm. I, it, every time I meet a company like that, I just I, I get a real buzz. And, and it validates and, the mission of Gradient as well, it, it really, does. doesn't it? It does. Yeah. yeah. 
And, um, and, you know, sometimes it's a single individual who's sort of the change maker in an organisation, mm. but there's a lot of good people out there yeah. in business. And, and as long as the businesses aren't constraining them too much to, you know, knocking them into shape, um, you know, to, to not be like that, that will continue. <laughs> and look, there's a really good vibe out there, yeah. I find. Um, there, people are still, you know, struggling with how to implement that and mm. so on. And, and, and hopefully the document will help with that. Um, so I think Australia is in a good position culturally, um, and in terms of the knowledge. And there's some really good work happening in Australia, including at Data61 and so on, on, on new techniques for responsible AI. Um, Ed, Ed, who you mentioned, is doing some great work on assurance frameworks for AI. Um, and and then in the AI, um, the AI research field, there's a lot of good work being done on areas like, um, you know, just still, still back at the sort of narrow AI mm. in doing AI properly at that level. Mm. What's lacking, though, is sort of the AI safety side, which is what we were talking about earlier. I think, you know, Australia is behind, you know, the, the UK and EU and US on the AI safety research and AI safety technology, mm-hmm. and that's an area that is going to be critical in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think, you know, there's a lot of good intent in Australia, there's a lot of good potential in Australia, but I think there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah, I agree with Bill. I think um, culturally, there, there has a very significant shift we found in, in businesses over the past few years, uh, increased awareness of the importance and criticality of an ethical, responsible approach to to AI application and development. And in terms of in terms of research, so Australia has an immense talent pool in AI. This is something that not many people know. Um, of course, there's, we've got Data61 with a lot of AI talent, university sector, you know, full of AI talent. And uh, the private sector in Australia as well has lots of um, talent in machine learning, data science, AI, many different ways of looking at AI as well. Um, so it's a country with a lot of, you know, richness of human resources in this field. I came to this, well, you can tell from my accent by now, should figure it out I wasn't born here. And um, I came here because, you know, at the time there was this great research institute that was created in the early 2000s in this country. And, and many, many, many people of my colleagues came from all over the world. It's a beautiful country to do research in AI in the early 2000s, mm. right? And uh, we're still here. Many of us, I am anyway, and uh, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of talent out there in many areas of computer science, artificial intelligence, you know, machine learning, optimization, you know, natural language processing, computer vision, you name it. So um, we need to put more money into actually getting all this talent, the right resources and conditions and support and more funding into AI research into the connection between the business sector and the academic and nonprofit sectors. There needs to be more uh, investment there. And, you know, one interesting thing to, to note, I totally agree with what Tiberio said, I mean, needs to be a lot more funding into AI research in Australia, but there also needs to be funding in the building of technology based on that research. If you look at OpenAI, you know, OpenAI is not a research organisation, it's an engineering organisation. And... Yeah, they were using research that had come out of Google, had come out of Microsoft research, had come out come out of Meta research. Right, they were using research that was out. Research papers are out there, and building it for real, and building it in ways that shocked everybody. Just how what you know the release of ChatGPT took everybody by surprise. The, you know, the research world, the, the technology world, and it was it wasn't new research. It was new technology being built. 
Now, Australia doesn't have the philanthropy that the US has. You know, it was philanthropically funded, most well, and and commercially funded. But that sort of thing just doesn't tend to happen in Australia so much. I think there needs to be more government involvement in Australia to build, to, to, to put into concentrated effort for building new technologies out of the research labs and connecting with all the startups around the place. Because, you know, there's a lot of startups in Australia. There's a huge number of startups now working on large language models in Australia with overseas technology. It'd be good if there was a bit more connection of all of those through some technology-based organisation working specifically in the foundation frontier models space, right? Um, I think that's missing in Australia. Yeah. And I think that's a really a lovely point to sort of draw to an end of the conversation, which is that so often when you're trying to drive change, the biggest challenge is cultural change, right? And what, what listening to the two of you, Australia has that cultural um, desire to look at and to develop uh, responsible artificial intelligence. Uh, we have the people uh, in order to do it. We have a government that's focused on it. I, I think it's fair to say that um, that Minister Husek has made this a priority. And also, um, you know, the minister talks very eloquently about Australia being a country of uh, tinkerers and fast adopters and all of these things. So it very much aligns with what you're saying, Bill, about it's not actually just the foundational research. It's also about how do you take that research, apply it, tinker with it, develop the technology that then takes off. So, you know, I think when you combine all of those things, it's actually positions Australia very well um, to be playing a big role at, on, at an international level on these issues, regardless of whether it's the world crowding around you as your Hold your pen at the AI summit, Bill. <laughs> so let's wrap up with what recommendations would you have to our listeners if they've really enjoyed this conversation and they want somewhere to go to next? I just finished reading a book that I would recommend. Yeah. Uh, to you as well, Johanna. Um, love book recommendations. You love it. All right. Yeah, it's called The Coming Wave by Mustafa Suleiman. Ah, yes. It's on my list. Yeah, yeah. I just finished yeah. it and I think it's... Uh, you know, it's a good read. It's a very easy read and fast read. And it gives some sort of, lot of very panoramic view of what is to come from a fairly high level perspective. And it's worth pointing out that Mustafa Suleiman is the co-founder of DeepMind, um, which of course, uh, you know, set itself up specifically to work on artificial general intelligence and uh, was subsequently bought by Google. And, mm. um, Exactly. The Great Institute submission, I would definitely yes, recommend that. Yeah, we can pop yeah, a link so to that. We've alluded to it previously here. Basically, Gradient's um, uh, recommendations for the government for the future of um, regulation in Australia. I'd recommend again the National AI, the Gradient Institute yes. and National AI Centre's report on um, so implementing Australia's AI ethics principles. That if you go to gradientinstitute.org, you'll see a link to it there. I also recommend... You know, if, if you're interested in the UK AI Summit, the recommendations from the Future of Life Institute mm. are, are really good. And, you know, I pretty much fully agree with those as recommendations. I think it's very, very sound um, advice. So, Bill Tiberio, thank you so much um, for your generosity of your time. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. It's been the highlight, I think, of my month. So thank you both very much. And we look forward to working with Gradient into the future. Oh, thank you so much, Johanna. It was brilliant. Yes, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could help us by spreading the word. If we can grow our audience, we can bring you more conversations, more regularly, like the great conversation I've just had with Bill and Tiberio. 
So please tell your friends and colleagues, post on social media about us, leave us a review or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does make a difference. So thank you in advance. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved. <laughs>